Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today, I have the pleasure of connecting with Sarah Dickman. Sarah is an amphibian biologist, educator, writer, and adventurer who likes to speak on behalf of monarch butterflies and other creatures. Sarah made history when she became the first person to ride her bike along the monarch butterflies on their annual migration path. This was a round-trip bicycling adventure that she went on solo that included crossing three countries and covering more than 10,000 miles. And she wrote a super compelling book about her journey that's called Bicycling with Butterflies. Well, the ultimate goal of Sarah's book is to raise awareness of the plight of monarchs. There's also a lot of life lessons she gleaned and reflected on during her epic journey. I know you're going to have a lot of takeaways from this conversation, so let's get into it. All right, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. So you were the first person to bicycle the entire route of the monarch butterfly migration, more than 10,000 miles from Mexico to Canada and back. And obviously this took a certain amount of know-how and preparation. But one of the things that stood out to me in the book is that you intentionally cultivated this wing it attitude. Can you tell us about that? I have learned from just going out and doing adventures that everything pretty much works out. And so you can plan and plan and plan. And then all you're doing is going to set yourself up to not achieve your plans because things happen and weather happens and wind happens and flat tires happen. And the good things like you meet someone on the side of the road and they're like, hey, you want to come over to my house? I'm always like, I'm always prepared for someone to stop me and offer me a trip to a chocolate factory because I have no plans. I will always be able to say yes. And so, yeah, the, the wing it comes from wanting to have space to enjoy what comes. And it's also a little lazy. Like I can't predict the future. I don't want to have to predict the future and I don't have to be disappointed when my predictions are wrong. So yeah, yeah, I like to just kind of go forward. Now I will tell folks, I do have like my bike prepared, like set up. So I carry all the gear I need. So I know in a pinch I can put up my tent. I know I have some snacks. So I know I'm going to like fulfill my basic needs. And so I can just kind of roll with the punches. Yeah, because I really, what was coming through to me is whether it's life or an adventure, sometimes we can be so rigid and overscheduled that we don't leave space. We don't leave space for magic or for something unexpected. In your case, it was oftentimes people, you know, people that came in that you would have never had time to talk to if you were so focused on a tight trip A to B to C you would have missed out on a lot of opportunities if you had been rigidly planned. Yeah. And and not only could I say yes to an invitation and like maybe just take a day or two off, I could also say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go 50 miles in that direction instead. Or like often it was, oh, there's a little, a little animal on the side of the road. Oh, I, oh, two hours just went by. Oh, well, 
So I could stop and enjoy the scenery too, literally. Yeah. Well, I found it to be a powerful reminder and permission slip for us all to loosen up the grip a little bit sometimes. There were a few points, speaking of your trip, you were you were so organized. I was inspired by how self-sufficient and humble you were because it's a major on-taking. And there was a couple points in the book when you had to backtrack, like you took a wrong route and you went the wrong way. And I could almost feel like the visceral disappointment and even like the pain in my leg is like, oh, I have to go back. But you never gave up. And we all endure a lot of zits and zags on our life paths. What do you have to say about being resilient and persisting with our dreams, even when we have to go backwards sometimes? Well, that question kind of varies on how big of a setback things are. For, you know, minor setbacks, like in a bike tour, I have this like funny coping mechanism where I'm like, oh, I just saved myself from like a car crash or like some terrible event. Like, oh, that little detour means I'm not at that point of road that that exact time. Like I kind of like think of it as the universe telling me where I need to be. And then bigger setbacks or like maybe more difficult ones. I've always like thinking, oh my gosh, this will be a good story for my friends. And so when it's like the most terrible conditions and like, or I'm like bailing my tent out with my cooking pot or fixing a flat tire in a culvert, I'm thinking, I cannot wait to tell my friend Tommy this. <laughs> and like kind of just appreciating in the moments of like, terribleness that they're actually pretty good stories and then when you write a book you think oh my gosh all the times where things worked that was like super boring and sort of uneventful and often I don't remember that but I sure remember the hardest days and the most difficult days and the weirdest days and so once you kind of know that and can kind of train your brain to be like thank you this is so terrible I'm gonna remember it forever we call that type two fun if that's not something you've heard before type one fun is this is fun in the moment. Type two fun is, oh, this is going to be a fun story to tell in two years. <laughs> so I like those moments. All right. I think that everyone's going to like opening up that type two fun tab in their brain. So that's a great perspective. Thank you. On your journey, it seemed like most of the time you were very gracious with naysayers. You did have a few, you know, times when you were a little hangry or tired and you felt bad because you had a little outburst <laughs> with someone. But the majority of the time, you were just very gracious and people seem to say the same stuff to you. Correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but it felt like, like it would be frustrating and annoying. Like people would kind of act like they were the first person to tell you like, you're going to die or the same question of, are you, you're really alone and you're a woman, are you safe? And most of the time you just kind of let this roll off your back and you actually had some compassion for these people. What do you have to tell us about brushing off the haters and staying true to ourselves. Yeah, I'm not sure I was very graceful about it. <laughs> but uh, I got the same questions a lot. And I wrote on my handlebars, two little handmade notes. And one note was, do it for the monarch. So every time I was super annoyed, I'm like, the whole point of my trip is to talk to people about monarchs and just to be a voice for the monarchs. So if someone stops me and asks me for the one billionth time, if I'm alone, I can talk about monarchs and that's the point. So try to like kind of turn these encounters that annoyed me into something that annoyed me less, kind of like take the power back in that way. But then I also wrote, it's easier to be nice, which is, it seems obvious, but like sometimes you're just hot and tired and you just want to like 
walk away or bike away from like the annoying person that's asking the same question again and again. But then if you like actually engage them, you find out oh, they're actually pretty cool. And then they're like, oh, do you want to like go do this really fun thing that never would have happened if I brushed them off? So I tried to do that and I didn't always succeed. <laughs> no matter what we do, there's always going to be people that are criticizing, especially when you're doing something bold like you are. You're not always going to have everyone in your corner, but just kind of trusting yourself and your gut and not folding to the concerns and criticisms of others. Yeah, I remember a trick I pick up is when people were being annoying about, oh, you'll never be able to do that or something. I just ask them to pick up my bike. And there's like a trick to picking up a heavy bike, which is like, you can't just like pick up from the top tube, which is like the, the part that runs along the top. Because it's like you're lifting too high, you can like have to lift from low, but you don't tell them that. So then they try and they lift from the obvious part, which is that top tube and they can't. And that usually kind of quiet them down a little. <laughs> so speaking of your bike, this was a super impressive undertaking. And I think people would appreciate just a visual of what you had packed and how you were literally traveling from place to place. My bike is not anything pretty. It's an old steel mountain bike, I think 1989 specialized that I got for $300 many years ago. And I like having an ugly bike because people don't want to steal ugly bikes. So it's reliable. It's maybe a little heavier, but that means it's usually a little bit more durable. And then on my bike, I had panniers, which are basically bags. And my back panniers were made out of old kitty litter buckets. So they were free, essentially. Um, I had some clips. I had to spend a couple dollars on each of them. And then they're waterproof. They're kind of smash proof because they're like plastic and hard. And they also, again, they make your bike look undesirable because <laughs> they did look pretty trashy. But that means I could lean them up against a grocery store and go in and not really worry that anyone was going to run off with my bike. So in all those panniers... I carried all my camping gear. I carried a lot of office supplies. So like my, I had a computer, I had a tripod for my camera, I had a camera. And a lot of this was for the outreach component of my trip, which was to like essentially be a voice for the monarch. So I was arranging presentations, which was actually really difficult to do when you're on a bike. But I had a little camp chair. So in my tent at night, I'd do my office work. I had a little bit of stuff for fixing pretty minor repairs that would happen, like flat tires and stuff like that on a bike. I had an art set. I would like paint. I would watercolor like little thank you notes for folks I stayed with. I stayed with 68 families on my trip. So I needed a lot of thank you cards. Um, That was a good way to kind of uh, decompress at the end of the day. And yeah, a little bit of clothes. I usually try to carry about a day's worth of food. Um, Kind of dependent on where I was, but I usually go to a grocery store once a day. So I feel like that gives us a visual of how self-contained you could be. And so you were traveling light considering how many miles you were covering. So at one point during the book, you write about losing one of your panniers and having a little bit of a moment of panic. So now that we understand that you were doing 10,000 plus miles on your bike and this is all you had, losing one of those is no small thing. I'm going to read a quote that you said because somebody actually helped you find it in a moment of panic. You said, her compassion made me feel silly and dramatic, and I started to cry. I was too old for this. Did this trip give you hope and humanity? 
for humanity, I think there's two parts to that story. I am a white lady, so I could walk up to a house and knock on a door crying and be like, I need help. But I have to imagine if a black person needed help, a black man, let's say, needed help and knocked on a door, like what reaction would he get? And so I can speak to humanity as a a white woman traveling. And from that perspective, yeah, there's a lot of good people that are willing to be vulnerable and invite a stranger in. I think we have a long ways to go still. I think we know that it's possible. And I think that's where the hope lies. We know that people can assume the best and can be generous with their time and space and be vulnerable, which is really hard. It helps that bike tourists are already vulnerable. One person, I was like taking pictures of some milkweed in Texas and a guy like pulls over and is like, are you stealing? I thought I was stealing farm equipment. And I'm like, I'm on a bike. <laughs> it was very confusing. <laughs> so I was able to laugh him off. But most of the time people see that I'm just on a bike and <laughs> what am I going to do? So that level of vulnerability kind of allows other people to be vulnerable too. But yeah, I I think it's important to note my privilege in all of this so that someone that doesn't feel safe biking doesn't think it's about them. It's, It's about society, really. Yeah, I really appreciate you acknowledging that. And that seemed important because that was a thread that did weave throughout the book. In a kind of similar vein, though, you know, for example, I'm from the Midwest And in some of the towns, you kind of document your book is broken up into different segments and miles. And as you're traveling across some of the Midwest states, I felt like I could be dropped into any of those kitchens. And in a time where we are living in a world that feels divisive, I really appreciated the interconnectedness that you conveyed, not only with other people of different stripes of life in your trip, but with nature. What lessons in that area could you share with us that kind of peaked during your trip? Yeah, I have so many friends now because of monarchs. And so I just, I love thinking about this like tapestry of connections that kind of spreads across the country. That's all about protecting monarchs giving time and energy and land and money and devotion to the monarch. And it, it really does connect just this huge swath of people in these really extraordinary ways. And so I did my trip in 2017, and then I did a motorcycle book tour down in Mexico in 2022. And I stopped at some of the same houses. And I stopped at one house in um, Missouri. And it was a it was like a dry fall drought year. So her yard was amazing native garden in the front yard. And she had a lot of crispy plants. And But we're still looking through them. We're looking through them. And then I find in her yard, um, in her front yard, right next to her mailbox, maybe a foot from the curb, some, it's called butterfly weed. It's the common name of a popular milkweed species. And then there was a, a bright orange butterfly and they were grasping their chrysalis shell. So they had just declosed. They're probably drying their wings, probably, you know, a few hours old and were going to fly, fly off. And they were destined for Mexico. And I found two. And I just remember thinking like that butterfly exists only because of this woman named Val, 100% because of a decision she made to share her yard with nature and to be connected to nature through her yard. Then I start thinking like, and someone in Texas saw that monarch only because of a decision Val made. And so now there's this connection. And then someone in Mexico sees a monarch overhead or hears the wings of this monarch. 
only because of Val and maybe because of some, definitely because of other people in Texas who planted these native plants for them to nectar on. And then this last, or I guess it would be two springs ago, maybe that monarch laid eggs in someone's yard in Oklahoma. And so those eggs exist only because of Val and these people in Texas. And so you can keep just seeing how the cycle continues and spreads. And all of a sudden, this one monarch is connecting people across the entire United States. All, I mean, all the way up into New York has the potential for people to be affected by the one decision of one person in Missouri. Like, it's so inspiring and so beautiful. And so when you look and see a monarch, you can imagine the stories of that monarch and the generations that have come before to make that monarch possible. Love that. You mentioned sharing our yard with nature. And I'm always careful not to make people feel shame because part of your message in the book, well, not part of it, a lot of it is is advocacy. And I think that people don't realize sometimes that they're doing a disservice with perfectly manicured lawns. You know, that's just what some people were raised to do. They think they're taking care of their property. And there was something almost poetic about lawns and lives about your appreciation of these glimpses of more untamed spaces. What do you have to say to us about inhabiting and maintaining and encouraging spaces where we can share with the natural world more? Well, I would start by just saying there's so much potential to share. I think we need to acknowledge, even if it's difficult or uncomfortable or painful, that like every step we take is on stolen land. And that's not just stolen from indigenous people, but from nature and from wild creatures. And it's our responsibility to recognize that they have just as much of a right. And what I loved about my trip is I found so many examples schools giving space back to nature, of golf courses turning their their roughs into wild native landscapes, of people giving their backyards and their front yards back to nature. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be like, no, you can't have any grass anymore. You can't have any pavement. You got to get rid of your house and sleep in the prairie. This is about finding compromise and sharing. And I guarantee if you start to look around your city, your own, on your commute or your own yard, you'll start to see places where you're like, you know what, we don't really do anything there. Like maybe that should be where the monarchs, that's where the monarchs get and the native plants get. So finding those places to share. And yeah, it's scary. It's you have to buck status quo. You have to say, no, I see beauty in this wildness. I see beauty in, in life and all of this diversity. And so I invite the bravest people to start their gardens in their front yard and put a sign up and it's getting easier and easier. And we see the impact of one brave person being that first example. We see our ideas spreading. We see native gardens spreading. We see sometimes they're called way stations, pollinator plots, you name it. There's butterfly gardens. There's just so many more. And it's because the bravest people on the block became the example and gave permission to others. And so, yeah, I think starting small, starting with a little spot and then learning as you go and discovering all the little hidden secrets in that one little corner of your yard and how rewarding it is. And then I think another really important lesson is this idea of reciprocity. So we plant our native garden, maybe just a small, you know, a couple feet by a couple feet at the beginning. And then you see a monarch come visit nectar on one of the, the native plants you planted. 
And like, so you're graced with this beauty and then you get to have this connection and you get to be part of the solution. And that all these things are gifts that the monarchs are giving us to say thank you for their, for their time, for our yards. And so just like seeing, seeing that beauty. Yeah. I guess another last thing I'd like to say is like you mentioned, like people with their green grass are just trying to be like good neighbors. And so I just ask people to be not just a good neighbor to your human neighbors, but to your monarch neighbors and your goldenrod neighbors and your bird neighbors and your snake neighbors and frog neighbors, because they are also worthy. And once we learn their names and once we like, you know, notice them, they're going to be as interesting and as awesome to have as our human neighbors. You mentioned in this, because I honestly think that intimidation is what holds some people back. It's the unfamiliar And sometimes you have to be a little brave. You learned this lesson at one point in your book. Is it a greenhouse you were working at? Somewhere where you were kind of digging and you were like, you felt self-conscious because you're like, here, I'm supposed to be the expert. And I really have no idea what I'm doing. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, that was a demonstration house that was like, it's called um, or is called the Campus Center for Appropriate Technology. And it's basically a university house where students that don't know what they're doing <laughs> showcase these different types of technologies from like double pane windows to thermal curtains to gardens, et cetera. And I was one of the groundskeepers that just didn't know anything. And my one of my friends, he showed me a picture of the groundskeepers, you know, from the decade previous and was like, look they look like they know what they're doing. They didn't know what they were doing though. And they showed me a picture of myself and I was like, oh yeah, I look like I know what I'm doing. So I think I think um, learning by doing is so critical and also not being hard on yourself and like kind of laughing at the mistakes. So my mil- the first milkweed I planted is very, very dead. Very, very dead. Like as dead as you get. <laughs> but you know, it's like, all right, well, I learned something. The, the plants taught me what I need to know, which was that that wasn't a good spot. So I tried in a different spot. This was at my parents' house. And yeah, and that's how we learn. And we, we can't wait to be experts. So I, what I encourage folks to do is start small and learn as you go. And I, I think like that's such a beautiful thing the monarchs give us. It's like the world is just so full of problems that seem too scary to start fixing. But like it's actually not that hard to dig a hole and put a milkweed plant in. So it's a, it's a good place to start. And then once you realize like you could do that, you just build on that. Yeah. I want to make sure I touch on something that really struck me about your trip, because I love travel and adventure. There's probably a reason I gravitated to your book. But like some of the listeners, I'm a little hemmed in by responsibility right now. I'm a mother. And while I prioritize, you know, certain adventures, the responsibilities of parenthood in my current life don't always allow me to go on some big adventures in this season. And when you visited your friend in New York, you said something that really resonated with me. You said that even when she's not traveling, she's a great traveler in her own town. What does that mean? That, that woman's name is Lynn. And we were like walking and she's like past a foot massage place. She's like, let's go get foot massages. And this was like after we ate a, this like Japanese ice cream craze. It's like ice cream and a fish. It probably has a real name, but. It's like ice cream and fish-shaped ice cream cone. And she was just like so good at seizing the moments. And so, yeah, I think that I, especially I think with people that don't travel, there's lots of opportunity to just like see the world through the eyes of a traveler, which might mean like, oh, wow, there's a foot massage place there. We, I should go check that out. 
or oh wow look there's a cool tree there and so I think there's lots of like traveling your eyes are open more in a way that they're not when you're at home often um, so just kind of like remembering to look up and see the beauty around you and then the other thing about adventure and kind of what you were saying the monarch is so awesome right because you don't have to go to Mexico to see monarchs you don't have to go to a zoo to see monarchs like you literally just have to go outside and look up and notice uh, maybe grow a small garden to kind of help bring them in but you don't have to do a lot and the adventure comes to you and so you see a monarch in the spring or the summer and you know that that monarch like is bringing you a story from Mexico or taking you to Mexico vicariously and that's so special it's beautiful you said that your trip was more than biking and that bicycling is almost a prayer for you tell us about that I think there's something special about biking because it forces you to slow down and it forces you to feel the land and the weather and to see the world in a way that like is easy to miss when you're going fast. And I think on my, my trip wasn't about biking. It was about the monarchs. It was about being their voice. It was about trying to be part of the solution. I think everyone has a role to play. And like, I don't own land, so I'm not rich in the same way that like we think of people that can be conservationists but that doesn't mean we can't be part of the solution and so for me like the biking was a way to give my time and my energy to the monarch and then I think like I've already mentioned this but it's like worth repeating it's like the more I give to the monarchs the more they give back to me so I gave the monarchs nine months of my life and then they gave me all these friendships and so then I wrote a book and I gave that book to the monarchs and then they gave me money they gave me a book they gave me more connections they gave me more opportunity and so it's just like this it's it's this conversation that the monarch and I are having that like of given give and take of thanks and you're welcome yeah it's such a beautiful reciprocal relationship that you've developed I did yeah are there any other lessons from monarchs that are on your heart today that you feel like we didn't have a chance to touch on I think the most beautiful lesson that the monarchs teach us is like the power of numbers and the power of small being big. So when the monarchs are in Mexico, they they cling to the Oyamel fir trees and they'll be in these clusters and they can gather in such densities that their collective weight will break a branch, or at least bend the trees. And so I think, oh, one butterfly is not breaking a branch, but when thousands gather together, they can. And so I think Often, especially with monarch conservation, where we're focused on our little corner of our own little backyard, it feels like it's not unimportant or like, what's the point? But it is important. And like, we just have to remember, like the monarchs, lots of small monarchs add up to something amazing. So our small gardens, our small, our small efforts really do matter. And we watch them matter. We watch how now the monarchs make the news, like their, their population numbers came out as the second lowest ever on record for this winter. And it's pretty scary. It's pretty dramatic, but like it's in the news and people are standing up and that wouldn't have happened. If there hadn't been all these people doing small things for the last 30, 40 years to make it happen. I always end my episodes with an opportunity for personal reflection. And I'm wondering when it comes to all these beautiful lessons that you learned from monarchs in your trips and kind of in the context of a wake-up call for us to stay connected to nature, what's one question when women could be asking themselves more? I feel like that is going to depend. What's kind of coming 
to my mind is like asking ourselves if we're trying. Trying is all we can do. I met a lot of people on my trip who said things like, when I was a kid, I used to see lots of monarchs. That was so upsetting if it wasn't (laughs) followed by like, and I tried. And I don't know if we're going to save the migration. I don't even know if that's the point. But when I would meet people older than me that told me they've tried, that meant everything to me. And so I want people to ask themselves that if someone not yet born asks what they did, can you say, I tried? And like, there's so many issues. It doesn't like the monarchs might not be your joy, but like, are we trying? Are we trying? I think that's all we can do. And that's what we need. We need to do. Beautiful. Sarah, I know people will want to follow you and hopefully learn more about the plight of the monarchs and be inspired to try. Where can we find you and follow you? I have a, a website that's beyondabook.org. And I, I, I'm on Facebook on, at Beyond a Book, I think, and maybe Instagram, but I'm, I'm not very good about that. So uh, that's okay. But, and yeah. I'll also make sure they check out your book. We'll make sure to capture that mm-hmm. a link to that in the show notes. So <laughs> that would work too. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, it was wonderful to connect with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thanks for the invite again. Have a good day. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at, at @whitneywoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.